something that we didn't get to talk about in the last one was AI. And AI is something that I'm very interested in. And like, I think I had at least like three pieces in my master's composition recital about AI. And so this is something that is like very like creatively inspiring to me as well. So I guess like what, I guess, what is your beginnings into that? And how did you even do like finish a symphony with AI? (laughs) That's a good question. Um, And one of the you know, like everything else in my life, I think I, I told a sort of very long version of my uh, musical journey in the last podcast, but it's it's been, you know, kind of just dumb luck. Uh, so I had a friend who's a computer scientist who, you know, we just became friends over the years. We had a mutual friend and she introduced me to one of her colleagues who uh, was, who is a computer scientist. Um, uh, Mick Grierson is his name and he's, he does all kinds of really cool stuff in the UK. And he had this idea of finishing Schubert's Unfinished Symphony with artificial intelligence. And we talked about it, and I thought that it was going to be like I did it in Sibelius, and we premiered it for a bunch of grad students and then got some beers. <laughs> that, that's really what I thought it was going to be. And we had sort of been talking about it and talking about it. And, um, and then uh, Huawei, the cell phone manufacturer, got involved and said, oh, we can you do this on our cell phone? And we'll make it into, you know, our biggest piece of marketing for tw- the year. And, uh, huh. and also, you know, however much you need to do this is fine. And so that's <laughs> when it went from, uh, you know, sort of an academic project to a real marketing project with an orchestra and so on. And uh, so, yeah, it was quite by accident. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a computer person. I, I don't think I even had like an email address until I started working at um at NBC where you know you had to um, they assigned you <laughs> yeah. one and you had to use it because that's yeah. how the company communicated um and still does right but the what intrigued me was working with a with a non-human intelligence you know the idea of working with a synthetic brain you know and uh it's interesting because i don't know if artificial intelligence as it is currently exists as it currently exists, is really a synthetic brain. Um, uh, or if that term is a hot button issue for some people, I don't know. But but that's how it feels. It feels like working, collaborating with a uh, with an intelligence that is that is non-human um, because mm-hmm. it definitely has capabilities, but it also like doesn't have basic capabilities. Like you, know, you can't really talk to it. Um, yeah. You can't ask it questions. You can ask it very narrow questions, but you can't ask it why it thinks something. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that it's, um, my intro into AI was very, uh, chance and I'm, I'm really more involved in the sort of artistic side of, um, in the production side of what it does. And I, I'm not, I know a little bit about what goes into making, uh, an AI engine, but I, I, I think I know more about, um, how to get good results out of it once you've created it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I guess what, not necessarily what were the results, but like, what did you come to find that it did and did it do it effectively? Yeah. The, I, I've done several projects with AI and they, uh, and I've used 
three different models, machine learning models, well, you know, one for each, um, for each project that I did, and they all had different strengths and weaknesses. Um, and they've, I've done these projects now over two or three years, and the models get better every, you know, every time I use them. So the one that we used for Schubert was initially, the plan was to feed it. Uh, initially, the plan was to uh, train it on all of Schubert's symphonies, just play the audio of all of Schubert's symphonies and say, make me a symphony like that. Yeah. And <clears throat> believe it or not, that didn't work. <laughs> um, <laughs> so what happened was we trained it on the audio of all of Schubert's symphonies and what it sent back was sounded like cats walking on a piano. It was just nonsense. And the reason for that, I think, was like if you were to train AI on the facades of skyscrapers and showed him mm. the facade of every skyscraper in Dubai and, and New York City and said, okay, now build me a skyscraper, design me a skyscraper, give me the blueprints of an actionable, buildable skyscraper. It would probably give you something that would stand up, but it wouldn't know, well, there has to be bathrooms, you know, and mm -hmm. there have to be floors. There has to be a way for humans to get from one floor to the other. Um, and, you know, there are only certain materials that we have in abundance on planet earth that we can create these things with, you know, it would be, it would be missing a lot of information, even though it would have a gigantic database of what skyscrapers are supposed to look like. Um, so I thought what we should do is give the AI, train the AI on something simple and ask it to give us simple results back. And what we did was uh, my team and I went through hours of Schubert and just picked out monophonic melodies. And mm. so we would go through the symphony and say like, all right, what's the main theme here? And we would just pick that out and label it as, you know, whatever it was. And then if there was a secondary theme, we would label that. But we trained the machine on monophonic melodies and then asked it to give us monophonic melodies back. And then my job as the composer um, was to put those together and make them into a symphony and to, uh, and to, Bridge, you know, it didn't just give me all of the melodies for the last two movements. It gave me some of them and I had to figure out what order to put them in, basically. Uh, yeah. And to bridge them with some others and also, and you know, what techniques to use and all that kind of stuff. So that, and th that worked. It was able to give us back some really interesting melodies and some of which I, uh, you know, just as a, as a, as a amateur scholar and professional musician, some of the choices that the AI made, I, I didn't really agree with. And uh, some of them <laughs> I did agree with, but I went with it anyway. I thought, you know, this is the, um, this is the piece that this, um, this is the, this is what we're doing, you know, and I editorialized it to a certain degree, um, to, to a large degree, but there were some, there's one particular melody in the second, in the third movement of the Schubert Unfinished Symphony. Uh, that's this slow um, sort of just like slow, close melody uh, that it's about six minutes in. And I I don't know, I, I when I heard it, I was like, I don't know if this is right, but then I just thought I'm going to try to make it work. And I think it, it's, it's nice. It's one of my favorite parts now. It's stylistically like way more modern than Schubert would have done. But <laughs> there's also, but there's also like, you know, Schubert died at age 31, I believe. And so he could have been writing 40 years after that symphony was abandoned. Um, and 
at which point some of that stylistic stuff would have been a little bit more appropriate. So it's possible that Schubert would have come back to the Eighth Symphony 40 years later and had it be, you know, his masterpiece, it could have ended up being his Beethoven's Ninth. Um, and I think that part of the reason, and, and I didn't start thinking about that until the AI was giving me uh, melodies in a style that I didn't expect. Um, and so whether or not that's what Schubert would have written, it was a very cognitively, musically, and creatively valuable uh, insight. So, so, so that, that, and that's kind of what got me. That moment was when I really became interested in AI, was when I realized like I just had an original idea based on something that a computer generated. Yeah, that's something that I've encountered quite a bit in sort of collaborating with computers in a way is, is that while, or collaborating with a generative systems. And so I, I was kind of talking about how I, I sometimes have like two methods of composition and one is sort of intuitive, kind of the more traditional, like I have an idea and this kind of goes somewhere and let me feel it out and tell the story in the way that it, it seems to be going. And then there's this other way, which is sort of more generative, sort of systemic. And so it's like, I'll make a system by which parameters go into, and then the, the system generates information, and then I sort of turn that information into music. And so what I've found through working with this sort of generative composition style is that while you are not necessarily like making the information that it outputs, you are still sort of creatively taking part in one, deciding the parameters that go into it, but also the way that you interpret the information that is output and how that, like, yes, you are in a way, like, using this information to create the thing. And so you could say that it's like, oh, this is what an AI made or what uh, the sounds of... I don't know, space, the like planets make with their like background noise or whatever. And, and people do that as well. But it's like, you are still putting a bit of yourself into it because you are choosing the parameters. You are choosing what to take in and how to interpret that information. And so it's like, it's a collaboration. It's just not with another human. And I, I think that's kind of a, a different thing where, I mean, yeah, I do this with sort of systems that I can generate, but it is a little bit different with an AI because it is sort of, it's making decisions in a way. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's, uh, people bristle at the, at when you talk about computers making decisions sometimes, um, <laughs> which is interesting because, you know, they don't think twice about the fact that the an algorithm made a decision about what movie they're going to watch next, and <laughs> sure. usually a correct decision. Um, but, uh but I think you're talking a little, you're talking about um, serial music. Uh, yeah. And like Schoenberg, you know, I don't think Schoenberg would have uh, conceded to the fact that he didn't write the music he wrote, even if all he did was come up with the rules of it and then plug those rules into music. You know, he he came up with those rules and those rules became music. And you could make a logical argument extending that to, well, I wrote the algorithm, the algorithm wrote music, so I wrote the music. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, um, 
uh, or I used the algorithm in a certain way because you could use one of Schoenberg's systems to generate your own piece. And then, mm -hmm. you know, did you write that or did he write it? It's a, it's sort of a, I mean, I think philosophically, I think it might be an unanswerable question and legally it's just going to come down to who's a better lawyer. Um, <laughs> um, but the, I, one of the pieces that I did with AI uh, was for a company called SoftBank and they had a big, um, big show in Pasadena, like a, you know, basically a corporate retreat. And they asked me to write a piece of music with AI for that re retreat. And so I wrote an octet where I took all of the SoftBank invests in lots of different companies. And I got the data, the location data for the headquarters of every company that they invest in and divided them into four categories. So um, by what they do. And so there's four movements to this piece called their move, serve, save and thrive. And so like <laughs> the they invest in a lot of companies that are like mobility, you know, automated cars and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, you can uh, you can extract all that. But I divided them equally by that. And then I got the um, GPS data, you know, the coordinates for each company's headquarters and fed that into a a generative algorithm. Um where, you know, we just assigned values to numbers to get notes. And so like, you know, if you had a, if we have a, say like a 12 digit coordinate, it would give you 12 notes pretty consistently. And then we had the algorithm generate other melodies based on that original random melody. Right. So it was, and, and, and then I, and then I picked and chose which one of those I wanted to use to represent each of these companies. And I wove them all into each movement. Um, and sometimes, you know, there are some melodies where like, it's kind of the main theme of the thing. And then there are some where there's, you know, one company that is just represented by one counter melody for two measures, you know, but I, but I got them all in there that, you know, I can, I, I can show the work. It's, would be mind numbing yeah. to look at, but, um, it was, it was uh, mind numbing to do, but the results, once I, once I finished the generative stage of it, the musical result I think was really nice. And, um, the way that I conceived that piece was serial music, but with the ability to iterate so much and so quickly that we could actually get something that sounded pretty. Um, because the problem with, Schoenberg's music, you know, with respect to the maestro is that it's like a lot of it is unlistenable, um, yeah. you know, and it's, uh, it's, and that's because if you're, if you're serializing music and iterating it by hand, there's only so much you can do. And so you can work on it. You can work on doing different iterations, you know, for several days and you might not find something that's pretty in there or something that is nice. You might find something you can work with, um, but if you have a computer do that iteration, you know, a million times and then say, only give me back the results that are in this key, you mm -hmm. can get a bunch of really pretty results that are iterated in a, in a, um, in a, you know, intellectually honest way, but that are, that are kind of beautiful. So, so that's what I did for this piece called SoftBank Symphonia. Um, I'm going to release that in January-ish on Spotify. Uh, and and yeah, that was, it was an interesting process. It was, it was time consuming and, you know, pretty, it got pretty wonky in there, but, uh, but the end result I think is really nice. And so that's one of the things that AI can do, which is, I think is take these, um, 
concepts from the 20th century that uh, Schoenberg and Boulet used, and many others, to to great effect, but kind of shocking effect and sort of academic effect. You can take some of these techniques and make them pretty, and I think, and make them tell a story and make them be a piece of music that an average person could listen to and enjoy without having to understand the work that went into it. Yeah, definitely. There's, and I mean, uh, going into like music theory and all that stuff and academically, it's like, yeah, you can get really excited about the fact that like, oh, there's like so much in here. Like you can see that like the, I think the, the number one like academic BS buzzword that I got from my master's degree is combinatoriality, which is like whenever one half of the 12 tone row, uh, is able to be laid on top of the other half of the 12 tone row and it completes the whole row and it's able to be like separated in halves. And so it's like, if you play the first, the first half on top of the second half, you also have the entirety of the row, which is just like, so nonsense, like music theory BS that it's like, it's cool. Like mathematically, which is like, you know, Milton Babbitt was a mathematician and composer and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, yeah, it's really neat. But like, does it sound nice? Is it telling me, is it evoking emotions in me? Cause like at some point you're getting so far away from like the purpose of like, why am I making music so that like, yeah, you can totally like you could do this with anything in the same way that like you took all of the like GPS coordinates and all of the locations and all of the different branches and all of that stuff. You can, you can feed information through anything and use transducers and turn it into anything else. And like that, I think more so they're just tools by which we can be inspired to create different things because like, anything can be anything. And that's, that's a really cool, inspiring thing about it. And so like, I was telling a friend about this that like, uh, he's super into cars and it's like, yeah, you could totally like, you can just transfer anything into anything. And so like, you could take the sound of your car's engine and then convert that audio information to visual information and make like a, a visual pattern out of it. And then like paint your car or like line your car in that visual pattern. And so that technically what your car looks like is also what it sounds like, which is like a cool thing, but it's also like BS. We're just turning like data into other data. But like whenever you explain it, it's really neat. And that's sort of the story more so comes from the explaining of it rather than what you see in itself. And so like when you get so far away from stuff, it is like, I don't know, getting away from the fact that like music itself, if, if the music by itself doesn't tell you what the initial thing is, then it is kind of just like, in a way, just arbitrary anyways, but it is, it is cool when you tell the story and it's like, Oh, this, this came out of this thing. Um, but like kind of what you had said in the previous podcast is like, you're trying to help say something. I feel like the, the, my role as a musician is to communicate with the audience without, uh, in, in just a different way. And I, I write songs with lyrics and stuff, and that's a, a form of communication as well, but the music is a form of communication as well. And so it's like, if you, 
like, okay, so the train of thought of where I'm going at least is at what point can AI sort of put all of this together? Because it does seem like we're able to feed algorithms information and they give us other information that we can work with. But then at some point, are we able to, or at some point, are we going to be able to just feed an AI information and then it's actually going to give us the full complete thing to where you don't need a composer on the side to be like, let me wrangle all of this nonsense information into something that is workable and pretty to listen to. Um, well, uh, we're already there. <laughs> Th that already exists. It's just um, it's just mm -hmm. a matter of taste, you know, um, that, but there are already uh, there's a company called Ava, A-I-V-A, that can generate music that sounds like music. It's, you know, it's not it's not brilliant, but um, <laughs> there are composers out there who have sold music to libraries that has gotten on the air that is not as good as this music that Ava's done. You know, not a lot of them. I mean, it's not I'm not too worried that Ava's going to take my job in the near future, but it also is getting exponentially better. Um, and, you know, I think the I've always felt that um, and maybe this is just sort of being born in the later part of the 20th century and being exposed to a lot of this art um, that only makes sense in context. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of an amazing statement. Uh, modernism is like kind of an amazing statement because the amount of music that is available today is mind boggling. Um, you know, it's, there's so much out there and so much of it is good um, that the story behind it is really what ends up differentiating it from anything else, you know? And so on the one hand, that's important. That's important to get people to listen to your music today. There's a different thing that's important to get people to still listen to your music in a hundred years. And that is that it has to be listenable in, in a hundred years and a thousand years, Schoenberg's you know, serial suites are going to be, I think, more of an academic curiosity than pieces that people still perform. Um, but uh, the music of John Williams, I think, is going to be performed as long as music is performed. Um, and, you know, the, uh, the idea, the, the idea that academics, but, but I also don't want to denigrate academics because what they're doing is also really important. Um, and I, you know, I don't think that the combinatoriality playlist on Spotify is ever going to get a lot of <laughs> listeners, but the idea of playing with these ideas, even when they, um, or the, the act of playing with these ideas is what generates new techniques. And while it's possible that we've sort of mined the 12 tone row for all of the you know, interesting uses we're ever going to get out of it. It's possible that th that mine has run dry, but it did yield mm -hmm. some really great results. And some of them can be heard in the music of John Williams. Some of them can be heard in West Side Story. You know, these techniques were employed by people who were um, masters at communicating with their audience. And it takes, it takes both. So they're there is no, um, you know, there are composers that you and I as professional musicians would probably enjoy, but, but would know that we're enjoying it for a specific reason that is largely academic. And then there are also composers that, um, 
you and I surely enjoy that we know everybody would enjoy, you know, because it's music that's, that's, that's just makes you feel a certain way. And, uh, I mean, your question was very broad and, and, and really huge. <laughs> and another, another area that you touched on was, um, you know, at what point is an AI going to be able to combine all these ideas, um, itself? And the answer, I, this is how I got into AI was that I, when I was learning, when I was working, uh, in my internship and then assistantship in film music, one of the things that I learned, and I was working for a guy named Michael Levine, who is, um, as he would say, his lasting contribution to Western culture is that he wrote the Kit Kat jingle. Um, <laughs> and so Michael is, uh, Michael Levine is a master at um, communication and music. And the way that he views a lot of music is as a, uh, is through cliche. And I don't mean that in a, in a derogatory way, but in, um, and, and his word, not, not, I'm not, I'm not, uh, denigrating him. This is how he has explained it to me is that there are, um, you know, you have to be original, but there are certain cliches that you can rely on, um, to evoke a, um, consistent emotional response from your audience or a consistent, um, psychological response. For example, a solo, French horn playing wide intervals signifies that a hero is coming. And that is, um, has been true since Wagner, you know, uh, John Williams didn't invent that. Neither did, uh, Eric Korngold. That's been around forever. Um, you know, the, uh, another like sort of cartoony cliche is the whole tone harp with like a camera panning <laughs> down, you know, yeah. I mean, this is, or the whole tone harp to indicate, uh, to indicate a flashback um, wonder, yeah, a flashback or wonder or magic, you know, mm. and these are, um, cliches, but they're reliable cliches. And what you're trying to do, um, especially in film music is, uh, tell your audience a story. And sometimes, um, even the greatest writers rely on cliches. They, um, and Michael does this in music. They, the greatest musicians and the greatest uh, writers, they're not trying to reinvent the language of music. They're trying to use the cliches in a creative and interesting way. And that is something that I thought could be easily explained to an AI. I, I was not right about that, or so far have not <laughs> been right about that. Or no, I was not right about that and that it could be easily explained. I think I am right that it can be explained and other people are working on that. Um, but I sat down and tried to sort of like make an Excel spreadsheet of like, how could you do this? And I realized it, that that wasn't going to work. Um, but the, um, but the, uh, yeah, the idea that, um, you can make, uh, serialized music quickly and make it work and make it sound beautiful and interesting, I think is one of the sort of revolutions of, of this, uh, of this time. Um, and of the, of that AI is, is one of the revolutions of artificial intelligence. But yeah, I, I, I often think about like academic music and, you know, there, there's a, in, in the jazz world, um, there are some bands that I love that are like just too hip for human consumption, you know, and, you know, we call it like math jazz where it's yeah. like, that is so clever, but, you know, and it's so intricate, but it's also like, it's like maybe just too cool. Yeah. No, there's definitely a lot of stuff where like, I feel like lately I've fallen off the deep end of like where like 
normal weird stuff isn't cutting it for me. And so I have to find like the weird, weird stuff. And so it's like, today I just want to listen to like an hour long, harsh noise distortion thing. And it's like, I, I may not always be in that appetite, but like, you know, there, there are days where it's like something isn't like punching me in a way that I haven't felt yet. And so it's like, Sometimes it is it is hard sort of in this academic approach to, I guess, find something new, especially whenever you've like spent all your life trying to decipher all of all of the cliches and all of the different languages and things, uh, tools that we use to communicate through music that I don't know. I feel like a lot of times non-musicians always ask the question. It's like, oh, since you know music theory, like is the, is the magic gone from music? And I feel like in some ways, yes. And in some ways, no, because you, you're still able to see the the code in the matrix, but you you're still able to enjoy the beauty of the code and enjoy that like someone had the the ability to find these separate pieces of ideas and put them together um and that's nice and that's still makes it enjoyable to like yeah i know music theory but like it's not going to stop me from enjoying a a simple chord progression or whatever but there are times where i'm just like oh there's that thing again yep (laughs) and and so like yeah i i do sometimes go a little out to the edges to see like what else can we do with music what else can we do with communication what else can we do with sound and so i mean like right now my like my favorite group is clipping which is a a rap trio uh the rapper and lyricist is davi diggs who played uh thomas jefferson and uh, marquise de lafayette in hamilton and he also has two producer composers that um jonathan snipes and william hudson who a lot of their roots are in like harsh noise music concrete type stuff and that combination of like hardcore rap with harsh noise composer elements makes for this new interesting thing that like i know what rap cliche is and i know what like musical cliche in rap tracks are and whenever you do it in this way that's so like this combination of things that isn't so common it it is very fulfilling to me as a musician who's gone off the deep end and it's like yes harsh noise but with rap and it's cool (laughs) yeah i mean there's there's a lot there but you're i mean you're a little bit describing the campbell soup can that andy warhol did where you know, you're taking something, putting it in another context, and then it's interesting. You yeah, know, there's exactly. really nothing interesting about a Campbell soup can, you know, except for <laughs> there is something interesting about it. Someone designed it. Every aspect of that was designed. Every aspect of it was, you know, carefully thought out. And putting it in a museum context makes you think about it differently. And that's the the same thing with, uh, you know, like what rap and music concrete. I mean, there's, there's sort of two things there. And I don't know the band that you're talking about, but like mm. when you give something a a groove that makes it palatable to almost everybody kind of no matter what it is. You know, if you can move to it, it, it like people will j- will deal with it. Um even n- no matter how weird it is. The same way that if you give something a really beautiful melody, um 
I would advise any musician and anyone listening to go listen to the music of West Side Story and uh, and maybe listen to Leonard Bernstein's uh, Bernstein's explanation of it, because I never realized this. I listened to that music growing up and uh, I never realized how weird it is. It's so weird. And it's yeah. like this like weird 12 tone stuff, but it has these beautiful soaring melodies over it that are, and, and it's got this amazing, you know, it's Romeo and Juliet. It's one of the greatest stories ever told. So um, watching it growing up and, and I'm, I'm Puerto Rican. So like, you know, it was also like about where my mom grew up. So everything about it really um, spoke to me, but listening to it with, uh, with fresh ears as a musician today, it's, I mean, I can't believe that that ran on Broadway. Like if, if I pitched that to someone, nobody in their right mind would say yes. But, you know, it's one of the greatest musicals of all time. Um, and another thing that you said was about your friends, uh, you know, asking if you can still appreciate music after knowing, you know, how the sausage is made. And that mm-hmm. um, speaks, I, I noticed this when I graduated from college and that, that speaks to uh, just sort of the pedagogical the Western pedagogical method, which is, um, can be summed up in a word. Um, and that word is dissection. You take something apart to see how it works. And the problem is that once you take something apart, that's alive, it's not alive anymore. Mm-hmm. And, um, with music, you have to, you know, so my, my joke was that the conservatory, basically what they do is they take the thing that you love, they put it on a slab, they cut it open and you have to look at every part of it and like feel its corpse and understand how it works. And if you can then like Frankenstein that back together and make it alive again, you should be a musician. Um, yeah. so some people never get past that where they're just like, you know, now that I've seen how that's done, I'd rather just like go make more money doing something else or, you know, make less money doing something less stressful. Um, and, but, uh, but yeah, I think the, um, that that's, that's part of, you know, that's not the only way to learn. Um, but that is the way that we learn. And I don't, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't see, I don't see, uh, I, I never had that moment of like thinking that music was, that's not true. I guess I had like my snobby period of like thinking that music <laughs> that I understood was not good. You know, mm-hmm. if that makes sense that if I could understand it, it must be too simple to be interesting. And that's just, um, that just speaks to like a, uh, I guess the illusion of explanatory depth that I understood it on one level and did not understand it on another level. Like I, uh, and, and this is something that I notice with people with who talk about pop music, you know, a lot of especially serious musicians will say, you know, well, pop music is like just simple and it's the same thing over and over again. And, you know, when I talk to people about AI, one of the things I hear a lot is like, well, I guess an AI could probably make pop music, you know, but pop music is incredibly intricate and um, incredibly complicated. And it's produced by obsessive compulsive geniuses who have labored over every second of it and made it perfect. And it's like the, you know, it's like saying that a skyscraper is simple because it looks like smooth on the outside, (laughs) you know, like it, (laughs) it takes genius and years to make it look like that, you know, um, and pop music is no different. And so, uh, I think that, uh, in learning how music works and learning how to dissect something, you're, you're only, I mean, it's that, that's sort of the apprentice phase, but then what you realize is that everything that is alive is that complicated. 
and that there is like you can spend i mean there are people who spend there are smarter people than us who spend their entire lives studying the foot you know and they get as much out of that as we get out of studying music because everything can be infinitely complicated and you can drill down as far as you want and you'll never reach the bottom um and so so yeah i think that the um I'm, I'm not, I guess we're just kind of having a discussion. I don't, I don't really yeah, yeah. know if there was a question in there. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, the, the music is, music is an interesting, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting field because there's just so much, you know, you could be an expert in one kind of music and never have heard like the luminaries of another kind of music. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. And, and I think that like this kind of, goes into a few different trains of thought, but, um, it, it is kind of like the, the one thing that is comforting to me that, you know, every musician goes through this, the fluctuation of like, well, what makes me so special and why should I make something? And like, there's so much good music out there that why should people spend time listening to mine? Uh, but I get comfort in the fact that it's like, well, like I'm the only me making my music and this is the only place where anyone can find the music that I'm making. And so it's like in, in the same way that like we can both receive the same level of training and the same like musical knowledge, but our life experiences and everything that we've gone through and learned differently and the different relationships that we have and all of those different experiences will shape how we make something differently. And so it's like every single person has something to contribute because no one else can do that like them. And so it, it does seem like the, the musicians that tend to kind of succeed or, or stand out aren't the ones trying to necessarily make something palatable. Like, I feel like that might have been like the first step for me was just like I want to make something that sounds like that sounds like real music <laughs> and and then like after mm -hmm. that it's like all right well why don't you make something else <laughs> and it's like well it will it still sound like real music and then like everything else can kind of come out of that and so like I do feel like my early stuff or my my songs that I've been sort of singing for the past like five, six years that I wrote a long time ago are somewhere in between that step in the phase, but I'm still kind of happy about it because those are sort of a, and you also listen to Bloom, which is actually like, you said you liked Home, which is the first track in Bloom, which was the first thing I ever recorded into a computer i like awesome i got my audio interface and i got ableton live and i was like cool let's see what i can do and i was messing around with some effects had some reverb had some delay it's like ooh, i can make this delay go really long what happens if i play with that and then i hit record and played it out and like that experience of experimentation made something real <laughs> and that and that's something that like we can all do regardless of the amount of rigor that we spend because it I hadn't spent that much time 
with a DAW. I hadn't spent even that much time with a guitar. Uh, but everything that we do is kind of something new and something interesting. Uh, all of that to kind of lead to a question, I guess, at what point did you, I guess, realize that you can make something yourself? If that's a, a dumb question or not. <laughs> what point did I realize I could make something myself? I I don't know. So both of my parents are artists. Uh, my dad is like a is a documentary filmmaker, and my mom is a writer. And and her last name is Santiago, in fact, which is the same as your first oh. name. Um, <laughs> so, uh, um, and so I, I I think I was you know functionally born feeling like I could do that because that's what they did. Mm. And so I thought, oh, that's what grownups do. So like, you know, I can I learned to talk, I learned to walk, I'll probably learn to do that too. Um, hmm. and so, yeah, that, that is a, a blessing that I've had in my career is just, you know, the model of two people who, um, made a career and a life in a very comfortable home for their themselves and their two children. And as far as I can tell, never really had a job, <laughs> you know, <they're> just, <laughs> they just make the stuff that they want to make. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's, so I, I, I don't, uh, I don't have an answer for that question. I, I think I always hmm. felt like it was, this, you know, a, it's a human ability to make things. And if someone else can create music, I can also create it. And it comes down to, um, you know, to, to me, it's, it's like speaking. I mean, I have a different style of speaking than, than you or than anyone else. And in some situations it's appropriate in some situations, maybe it isn't. And, uh, it's the right thing for, sometimes and it's not the right thing for other times. And I think that that's the, I think that that's the, I think knowing who you are and knowing your niche is, and knowing your strengths are what, and when to deploy those strengths is what's probably the, the, the key to success in the arts. And I think about like, so I've been thinking about, I don't know if you're watching Mandalorian or if you're a star Wars fan, but, mm. um, you know, I think about Ludwig Gorenson a lot, who's, uh, uh, I think an exact contemporary of mine, maybe he might be a year or so older, but we're about mm. the same age living in Hollywood. I would say doing the same thing, but, uh, you know, not exactly. He's scoring Marvel movies. <laughs> um, so, but he's, uh, he's, his score for Mandalorian is, um, I think a great example of fine figuring out what the right thing is. Um, so if you think about, if I were to tell you today, Santiago, okay, I've got a show that, uh, it's going to be, a, you know, episodic show on, uh, Disney plus, And it's about, uh, a, you know, Mandalorian, like a Boba Fett style bounty hunter. And it's a star Wars show and there's Imperial troops and there's stormtroopers and there's, you know, it happens in space. So I want you to do a demo for that show for me. Um, you and 99 out of a hundred composers are going to give me your best John Williams impression. Mm -hmm. That's, 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 just because that's the sound of Star Wars. That's what Star Wars sounds like, you know? And um, and Ludwig, and I, I mean, I don't know what Ludwig sent as a demo for this, but I can, but you can hear what the music that he made for it. It's this really interesting, like percussion, sort of Western flavored music with like the minimum sized ensemble to sound orchestral playing a very strong melody. The thing about it that's like John Williams is that the the main theme is very very catchy, and it's and it's intricate 
and beautiful the way that John Williams's music is, but nothing else about it is anything like anything in the Star Wars universe. And that is, but it's exactly right for the show. It's the exact right vibe for the show. And that I think is Ludwig's uh, genius is that, you know, instead of saying like, I'm going to do something that's like Star Wars, which is an established language and a great language and, you know, one of the greatest film scores of all time. Um, instead of doing that, I'm going to do something that is like takes a part of that DNA, but is its own thing. And that's what ended up being the right, the right mood for that show. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, it really represents an evolution of film music. I think John Williams, um, you know, John Williams, I think probably perfected the art of using uh, 19th century instrumentation and techniques in storytelling and narrative storytelling. I think, mm -hmm. I mean, John Williams has ascended to the marble bust level of composition and in his life ha has been there for probably half his career. And in a mm -hmm. hundred years, we'll be listening to his music and studying it. And, and that's, that's what he did. I think he, he really perfected that um, idiom. And what I see guys doing now and, and women doing now, composers doing now is um, really changing and uh, like changing developing a new style, which is film music. I mean, John Williams is making basically is kind of still writing operas. You know, he's scoring mm -hmm. stuff the way that Wagner would in, in, in a lot of, you know, with his modern sensibility and his modern techniques and his modern um, understanding of music. And um, composers like, uh, like Ludwig are using different techniques that just didn't exist even like 20 and 30 years ago and using them to tell stories. And that language is, is being written now and probably won't be perfected for a hundred years. And so mm -hmm. that's really exciting to me to, to see people doing that. Um, and, uh, to hear, to hear new, new stuff that's coming out. That's like that. Um, that's pretty much my yeah. whole story right there. Yeah. 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 Well, no, I think that, and that's a weird thing because like specific, like the specific medium of film score is like it calls for certain things. And it's like, I don't know, it seems like you can find when something has like transcended whenever it like, I don't know, you can listen to the Star Wars score by itself. You don't need the context of Star Wars to listen to it and go, man, this is just great music. And then the hard part then becomes, it's like, how do you make just great music, period, but then also it works within the context of the film. And so it's like the film is first, you want it to work in the film, but then it's like also just great music by itself. And that's something like, yeah, that Ludwig Göransson does so well that it's like, not only is it so appropriate and exactly right for the film in itself but it's also just great music by itself there's also weird music by itself it's sort of breaking the boundaries of what we expect from not only just star wars music but music in general and it's like oh you can you can use synthesizers in star wars now you can use freaking didgeridoos and whatever other weird forward instruments in star wars music and that's okay now too and like but it's also just really cool by itself and so like i, I feel like those those types of scores that like you can listen to 
outside of the context of the film and still enjoy, those are like few and far in between, but it's like, you know, whenever something is, is that special. And I think those are like the, the thing that kind of transcend in film music for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think storytelling is, uh, requires cliches and cliches are cultural and culture is changing faster than ever. And so music and the way we're able to communicate with music is also changing faster than ever. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But then, uh, I, I think another medium that I'm, I'm very interested in video game music and where that is super different is that where film score, you have an exact number of frames that tell you exactly where everything is going to go. Video game music is sort of generative and we were talking about generative music, but it's like, how can you make something like happen with a player, even if the music itself wasn't necessarily planning on it happening right when it was happening. And so it's like, it's this live improvisation that you kind of get as a jazz musician, but it's also like beholden to the situation that the player character is asking for. And I think that that space to me is very interesting. Another reason why I'm interested in AI is because it's like that sort of generating something in this sort of free realm and still being able to make good music out of it is the challenge and the puzzle. And I feel like one of the big pieces of as to why I enjoy composing music is because it, it's, it's a puzzle. <laughs> I hear that a lot. That's, uh, that's one of the things that, um, a lot of great composers have told me that they, um, uh, John Ehrlich, who's a, a television composer and has done, um, uh, John Ehrlich, look him up. He's done a lot of really amazing mm -hmm. stuff. Um, and stuff that, you know, he, uh, house, I think most famously, mm -hmm. um, but also a lot of other network television. And when I, uh, met with him, when I first moved to LA, that's pretty much exactly what he told me was, you know, I love my job because every scene is a puzzle. And so I just get to play with it and try and figure it out. And that's what he does all day long. Um, mm. and, and his music is, uh, his music is great and it's perfect. It's perfect television music. Um, and, and it's really satisfying to him, uh, because he's able to sort of put his brain to work every day in this really interesting way. And there's a, a new challenge every single time. So yeah, I, I, I can't really speak too much to video games. I don't, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm probably the only one of my contemporaries who like just does not play video games. Mm. And, um, and I, uh, and I've only heard game music, um, like in the context of like concerts of game music. And I've like listened <laughs> to soundtracks for games before, but I don't really know how they work in the games. And maybe I'm, uh, you know, precluding myself from getting, uh, video game jobs in the future. But, um, <laughs> you know, hey, if you want someone who can give you an original video game score, I will by definition do it because I know nothing about the genre. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I mean, and that's the thing is like sometimes I can tell the difference whenever, uh, I don't know, sometimes video games will get like a name from like film or TV or something and try it in video games. And they're like, oh, crap, I have to like figure this thing out. 
and like sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And then there's there's other composers and like I'm I'm just a big fan of composers in general. <laughs> but it's like there's other composers that I can tell that like they intended it to work in game because of how the music layers with you and how it like interacts with the game and everything and it the way that that puzzle works and, and sometimes like yeah you can listen to a video game soundtrack um but like those are kind of examples of the soundtrack and not necessarily the soundtrack itself because the soundtrack itself You're talking is, about is what happens every time you play it well that's what <laughs> The, the, so you're talking about suites um, and like one of the things you said, I was going to say this when you were talking about the music for Star Wars, like the music that you hear when you go to a John Williams concert is was not in the film. Um, yeah. It's a it's a suite that he put together to be a concert version of the themes that were in the film um, and the and, you know, parts of it were in the film. But uh, and it's the same, I'm sure, with video game music where you, you put together a suite of music that is designed to work in a different context. Um than uh than it does in the film uh or in the in the game but and and that one of one of my other uh favorite composers is uh a good friend of mine who i sadly haven't seen in a long time because he fled to england um mm -hmm. during the pandemic you know brilliantly um and good for him because <laughs> he's in his, a country home in the uk while this is all going on but um but his name's dda uh and he is a really phenomenal composer who does a lot of uh scripted stuff uh, but also um started came up doing a lot of unscripted stuff and what he told me one time was um you know the, the things that he does for uh for the unscripted television he says look it might not be it's it's hard for me to sell this without his accent because he has this brilliant french accent but he says it might not be the um the most interesting music in the world to listen to but it works and mm. and that's when you see his music when you listen to his music it is very interesting and he and he's he's you know, full of modesty and it is incredibly interesting music, but, um, but it's, uh, but what's more important than that is when it's in the show, it works, it heightens the drama and it tells the story. And he, I know is someone who probably never thinks, well, this is a musical, this is a musically sound idea and I need to fit this in here, even though it doesn't fit this scene. I don't, he's probably never done that in his life. Um, I think that he is, um, story first and, you know, this is what works. This is what the story we're trying to tell. And I'm going to, and, you know, if this beautiful brass flourish that I really want to experiment with works here, I will use it. Um, and I think that's the, that's the genius of John Williams is that he is able to do both of those things basically. Yeah. Continuously yeah. where every flourish is brilliant and it also is serving the story in, you know, I mean, I think you could have John Williams score me reading the phone book and make it like pretty good, <laughs> you know? Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that's, uh, but that, that it's an important point that like the music that you're listening to in a concert setting or even on an album is not necessarily the music that was in the film, or at least not in the film in the order that it is on the album, uh, because mm -hmm. they're, they're different considerations and music for media is subservient to the media. Um, yeah. Uh, I guess so last question do you make music for yourself or just like this is 
my stuff and here I am putting it out? <laughs> uh, no, I, I mean, I make music, I make music for other people. That's I, I make music for you. I want people to enjoy my music and to listen to it. And I want it to be something that uh, makes them happy or, you know, makes them think or makes them relaxed or, you know, I'm trying to give something of myself to other people. And that's the hardest part about making music is that it is, um, it's like existentially frightening to make a piece of art with that intention and then think that maybe nobody will be interested in it. And, and that, <laughs> that happens, you know, that happens. It's happened to me. I've put my heart and soul into music that nobody has heard and clearly it will ever listen to. And, but that's part of the game. You know, that's, that's part of what makes musicians musicians is you have to be willing to do that. And you have to be willing to, um, put a piece of art into the world that you've put everything into that you've made for someone else. And if they spit on it, you just go back and make them something else. You just go mm -hmm. make them something different. And you try to um, learn why it didn't work for them. And usually the reason that it didn't work for them is because it was more about you than it was about them. You know? Yeah. Um, and mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, like if you give your wife a set of golf clubs for Christmas because you're really into golf, she might not like that. And you might go back and learn like why, mm -hmm. and maybe you want to listen to her a little bit more. And I, maybe your wife is a fantastic golfer. I'm telling this story because a friend of mine did that once and <laughs> his wife was not amused um, because she is not into golf at all. Um, but, but the, but that's, that's the scariest thing about making art is that you have to, you have to make it wholeheartedly and fully for other people and then offer it to them and then be, psychologically prepared for the fact that they might just not want it. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, for every Schubert's Unfinished Symphony that I've done, there have been, you know, hundreds of, uh, for every success, there's probably been hundreds of failures. Mm -hmm. And you try to learn from the failures and you try to not let it um, get to you too much. Or I, I try to, I try to focus on my successes and not focus on my failures because it's really easy to get, you know, it's just really easy to get dark and there's enough, um, you know, there's enough negative feedback just in, in the world that you don't have to focus on the negative feedback that's coming from your art, especially if you're also getting positive feedback. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> and then I guess, so last, last thing, is there a thing that you've made that you're especially proud of? I know I'm like asking you to name a favorite child, but like, <laughs> which of the things that you've worked on that you're like, man, I just, everything just came together on this one. And I just love this one. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I'm, I'm pretty proud of the, uh, the Lord track that I did. Uh, that's the, um, everybody wants to rule the world. I did that with, with Michael Levine. That was a, a partnership. Um, and I'm, I'm proud of that. I mean, mostly because it's simple and, you know, people really, dug it. Um, one of the things I'm most proud of, uh, one of the albums I'm most proud of is, um, an album called open your eyes. It's on Spotify. It's, it's really the only thing on my artist page right now. It's was done as library music and I did it with a, um, uh, but I, but we basically, they basically just paid us to make a record. And I did it with this great singer named Miriam Spire, who's uh, findable everywhere. And she just has this really amazing voice and really incredible ability to harmonize. And uh, 
a company called Audio Network uh, invited me to make an album. And I said, what I want to do is an album with her and a full orchestra. And they record everything <laughs> at Abbey Road. And so um, we made this album with like a lot of sound design, a full orchestra and her crazy, amazing layered vocals. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's available on Spotify. And um, that's, that's one of the things I'm the most proud of. Um, and I'm going to be releasing a lot of music in the next couple of, uh, in the next year, I have one of the things this pandemic has done for me is given me the opportunity to go back and listen to a lot of stuff that I'd done that I either did as a demo or I did for, uh, you know, an indie project where I ended up owning it at the end. And, uh, and I just, I just haven't had time to go through and release that stuff. And I spent time, uh, looking through my back catalog and realized there's a lot of stuff that I'm very proud of that I have not released. And, uh, so I think I have about one release a week for the whole rest of 2021. Um, cool. and I have a, I have an album coming out, uh, that I wrote about, um, about 2020, uh, that's coming out on Tuesday, uh, the ninth, the eighth or the ninth. And it's, uh, it's, uh, like a string ensemble, a small string ensemble. Um, and it's just, I, I guess that's a personal project because yeah. it like a, it's, um, I, I don't have any expectation that anyone's going to listen to it for the simple reason that it's too close to the moment, I think, because all the music is like kind of eerie and evocative and like really speaks to the feelings that I've been having throughout this year. And if people are not ready to like revisit that, I totally understand. And I like, and, and so if this album just sits on Spotify for a while and nobody listens to it, I'm like not going to be offended because I, because I completely understand why, but it is something that I wanted to put out there. Um, and maybe it'll sort of make sense in the future. Uh, yeah, but, uh, but yeah, the album's called 2020. It'll be out on, uh, on Tuesday. Um, cool. <laughs> yeah. So well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, Lucas, thank you so much for doing this with me. I'm probably going to still like hit you up later about random questions about stuff because again, I want your job. So <laughs> that was the one piece uh, of advice I gave you, right? Was hit people up. So yeah, please yeah, do that. Exactly. <laughs> um, so where can we find you and your things? Uh, I'm easily findable at lucascantormusic.com where um, you can email me. I think my phone number is even on there and please feel free mm -hmm. to do it. Just contact me directly. Uh, if it's a professional in inquiry, my agent's number is on there. But if you just want to ask me a question, just email me. And, uh, my Instagram is, uh, Lucas D Cantor. So find me there. I post a lot of videos of me playing a bunch of different instruments. Uh, and that's, that's yeah. pretty much what my Instagram is. So, uh, yeah, thanks for yeah. having me, man. This is, this is really fun. Um, you're a talented musician and a good podcast host, and this has been really interesting and a uh, fun way to spend my morning. So thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Uh, I'm Santiago Ramones and you are, I am Lucas Cantor. You can find everything that I do on my website, SantiagoRamones.com. I make music. Bloom is available now, streaming everywhere. Put it on in the background or show it to your friends so you can all enjoy it together. You can also buy it on Bandcamp and get bonus content so you can sit alone in the dark with your headphones on and listen to the album in its entirety while reading and looking at the bonus content. I also make music with PowerCycle, an experimental electronic trio. Our first completely improvised album, Too Many Damn Cables, is streaming everywhere. To support this podcast, leave reviews, comments, tell your friends about it, 
and buy my music because by supporting me, you're supporting the podcast. I always end the podcast with my three things. They shape my life philosophy. Those three things are love never fails. It's going to be okay. I might be wrong. 